Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 19, The Lion and the Serpent. Harry felt as though he were carrying some kind of talisman inside his chest over the following two weeks, a glowing secret that supported him through Umbridge's classes and even made it possible for him to smile blandly as he looked into her horrible, bulging eyes. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Casper Terkyle. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Every summer, my family and I would drive the eight-hour drive from Forest Row in England all the way to the north of Holland, where my family had like a shared house. And eight hours is like a long time to be in the car with three sisters and two parents. And there's only so many times you can play Torn by Natalie and Brugler on repeat. And so we would invent all sorts of games to kind of distract ourselves. And some of the games included if you're stuck in traffic, do a puppet show with the little hand puppets that we have in the car. Or if you're my sister, like pull your pants down and moon everyone who you were driving past. Or because we didn't have a TV as kids, we would pretend that the window in the car was a TV. We'd be like, what's on your channel? (laughs) But sitting in that car, driving, being with your family, but also kind of alone if you're putting on your headphones or something. I have some of my happiest memories playing these silly games to help time pass. And our theme for this week's conversation is distraction, which immediately to me sounded kind of negative. And it made me think of these car journeys where actually like the distractions became the fun of the journey. Like it became more than a pastime. It became a purpose of the journey. Like this was a way that we'd sing together that we wouldn't, right? We'd sing along to the radio. And so I'm really interested in thinking like when is distraction something that hides us from the thing we should be engaging with? And when is it actually the very thing we should be paying attention to? Ooh, what a juicy question. Doesn't the story make you want to learn how to drive? (laughs) No, because I love looking out the side window, looking at the TV. Got it. (laughs) Next time we're in the car together and I'm like, you're a terrible navigator. You can be like, I was just looking at the TV. I'm just watching TV. (laughs) I hope I'm a good navigator. You are actually my favorite navigator. I'm not kidding. When Sean and I first took a long road trip to Kentucky, I kept giving instructions by saying, take a left in 0.2 miles, which is how you would say it in English. And he kept saying, so what is it if it's not 0.2 miles? (laughs) I got so annoyed. It took me like 15 minutes to understand what was going on. Before we continue this rigorous conversation of sacredness, 
It's time for the 30-second recap, and I have the honor and pleasure of going first this week, Casper. Excellent, Vanessa. Here we go. Three, two, one, go. So Harry and Ron have their, like, first big Quidditch match together, and Hermione kisses Ron on the cheek and doesn't kiss Harry on the cheek. Ooh! And the game, like, Ron is doing really poorly, and Slytherin scores on them, I think, like, three times. And then it's okay because Harry catches the snitch, but while Harry is, like, celebrating, Crabber Goyle hits him really hard with a bludger, and then they start saying all these terrible things about Ron, which they've been saying the whole time, and finally they just can't take it anymore, and Harry and one of the Trins punches him, and Dumbled- uh, Dumbledore Umbridge is like, no more! Banned for life. Yeah, I didn't really get there. You know, 32 seconds, 30 seconds, what's the difference? (laughs) Two Two seconds. seconds. (laughs) Okay, on your mark, get set, go. So we hear Weasley is our king, Weasley is a king, he can't save a thing, Weasley is our king. And little do they know how awesome that song's going to be later, but for now it's like awful and bad because why would you want to be called a king by the Slytherins? Also, Luna um, creates her lion head. And because of the movie, I always think of it as like this stupid costume. No, it's freaking scary because it roars, but she didn't have time to like get a serpent come out of its mouth. Anyway, she's in the stands. Everyone's watching. Harry gets the snitch just in time, even though Lee Jordan and McGonagall are like, it's bad. So you didn't take the fact that I didn't get to the last, like, five pages of the chapter as a sign that maybe you should focus on them? Interesting. Okay. Correct. But mostly because I wanted to focus on the key <laughs> things of the chapter. The fact that, like, McGonagall and Umbridge have this big fight about can she ban things? And turns out she can because she's Umbridge and she got even more powers from the ministry. Yes, I agree that none of that is as important as costumes and songs. Correct. Vanessa, I want to start thinking about this theme of distraction at the very beginning of the chapter, because as you read in the opening sentences, Harry feels like he has this like talisman in his chest, right? Like this this sense of sneaky, hopeful, empowered something that helps him endure the difficulties of potions and defense against the dark arts, right? Like he has something else where his mind can live. He can go into his mind palace and, like, be excited about remembering that Ron can do this charm or Neville can do this jinx or something. In this case, again, it's like it's something positive, right? Because it gives him hope and it gives him meaning to the suffering. It's helping him make it through just a hard time. So I don't think it's giving meaning to his suffering. I Mm. think it's helping him through his suffering. That's not the same as making meaning of it. It's not saying some things are going to be hard, but it's going to be worth it in the end. It's saying some things are hard and you don't need to focus on the hard things. Mm. My mom used to say to me, I always wanted to write from the age of like 11. And whenever I had to do anything awful, my mom would say, it'll make for a great story. (laughs) I love that. And like I had a dual reaction to it of like that's not enough reason for me to go. It didn't make the suffering okay. But while I was there, I would always pretend to take notes and just like write down stories. (laughs) That's adorable. It reminds me, my friend Caroline has a life motto, which is story value over comfort. So like any situation (laughs) where there's potential for story, like makes it worth it exactly like that. Yeah. And that, so I disagree with Caroline, right? Oh. Who I love. I would never choose story value over comfort, mm. but when I have to do something, the stories I tell myself make it better. He's not excited about suffering in this moment because he gets to tell a story about the suffering later. Right. He's telling himself a different story while he's suffering. Right. Like his mind is able to be productive elsewhere because he's like planning the next lesson or he's starting to think about, you know, what else the DA can start doing. I had to look up talisman and 
it made me think of another exciting potential distraction. The definition, most of you probably know, is an object, typically an inscribed ring or stone that is thought to have magic powers and bring good luck. Mm. And I was just thinking that Harry is handed one with the coin that Hermione creates, and it's like this thing that he can hold in his pocket, right? I'm a big believer in like having a literal touchstone or touch coin or like something that reminds you of something positive. It's what I think the Catholics have great with the rosary beads and with the saint cards. And there's something that you can physically turn to in shrines. I think all of that is so important. And I love that Hermione gives everybody this one that, right, all you have to do is put your hand on your pocket and you have a second of respite. I love that, Vanessa. And I see as well as kind of that sacred object that you can hold on to or that reminds you of something bigger or, you know, something holy, even a very ordinary object like a fidget spinner or a stress ball like these are also material culture that we engage with they distract us not from like the everyday but actually from perhaps negative thought patterns that we have or they give us something to do instead of going down like a a doom spiral so i'm just i'm even thinking of him playing with this coin in the classroom not necessarily like it might be this image of a beautiful world or you know, freedom that he's working towards, but it might also just like keep him from like shouting in the middle of the class. Well, I think that we see the difference between a secular and a sacred experience of this galleon with the difference between Harry and Ron's reactions to it. Cool. Harry is like, oh, this is symbolic. I just have to be sure that I don't spend it with the rest of my galleons. (laughs) And Ron is like, like I could ever. And to him, I think that there is a negative shame spirally thing of like, this is the closest I'm ever going to get to having a galleon in my pocket. And so I think that for Ron, it has a more secular or profane weight to it. Whereas for Harry, it's just a reminder of like, I get to teach and I'm standing up against this woman who's oppressing me and she doesn't even know it. Which is such a a helpful commentary on how symbols might be the same in the world but play so differently for each of us depending on the contextual like life experience that we've had. Right? Like crosses can be so peaceful and so beautifully experienced and and I experience them very positively now. But as a child, I was like, oh, this might not be a place where I'm welcome. And then I think like part of the brutality of the practices of the KKK in the 60s is that often like black communities are very Christian communities and they were using this, they were using burning crosses as a violent act. And so to have something that should be wrapped up in like your redemption and your salvation become a violent symbol is just awful, right? So, yes. So Casper, a very exciting little moment happens in the book that I like personally had a sacred imagination moment with, which is when Hermione kisses Ron on the cheek. I like flushed and was flushing for both of them. I was like, ah, so exciting. Can we make this about distraction? Well, in fact, the word distracted is in the text. So we read just as Ron is is kind of in this daze after Hermione kisses him before the game. The text tells us he seemed too distracted to notice much around him, but Harry cast a curious glance at the crown-shaped badges as they passed the Slytherin table. Oh, Ron is still distracted from the kiss. Yes. I thought he was then distracted about how nervous he was about the game. He's still distracted from the kiss. Exactly. And I think his whole game experience is influenced by this moment. Genuinely, because I think what we're going to... He wants to perform well in front of Hermione. Exactly. Yes. 
I think this is a major moment in their romance because we're going to see the relationship between Ron and Hermione around Quidditch specifically get more and more intense, especially with the potion that's going to be shared later, or is it? And so Ron's already nervous in front of the whole school, but now Hermione cares about him. (gasps) Not only that, the brilliant moment of Hermione is that she kisses Ron on the cheek and then doesn't kiss Harry. Right, because it could have been like, oh, love you guys. Yeah. Good luck. But no. She doesn't even hug Harry. She's like very clearly communicating, kiss, sup. <laughs> like, talk about sacred secular, right? Like there <laughs> is like a separation happening here, right? Well, and I'm thinking of like what a kiss in those moments mean, right? Like everything. Exactly. Like it's both a, like a kiss of goodbye before a battle. It's a kiss of like anointing, right? Like it's the kiss of life after a hundred years of sleeping. This kiss is a moment of heightened connection, and but it's it's also without words. Like so, the meaning is still kind of open, and I just think Ron is all over the place. Well, Casper, we know that Hermione is more. Evil, dead inside, strategic. Aware. <laughs> than we like to think. She never gets distracted from a goal. And she has just pulled Harry aside and said, like, don't let Ron look at the badges. And so maybe she kisses him to distract him. And like all Hermione plans, it just goes too well. <laughs> and she distracts him throughout the entire game. Oh, this would be so heartbreaking. So you think maybe she's just like strategically giving Ron a kiss on his cheek so he won't notice how awful everyone else is? Or like to make him feel good, right? And, and mm. like there's no bad side to this. She makes him feel great before he sees a badge and is like, whatever, Hermione loves me. Or he's like, oh, oh, <laughs> and like so flustered by it that he doesn't notice. But I think that there's integrity to this. I think that she likes Ron and I think she knows that Ron likes her. And it's not like she's compromising her integrity in any way by offering this kiss. But I think she's like, now's a good, as good a time as any to ramp this thing up. So is that distraction? Because I would say that their relationship is more important than this Quidditch game. And so I don't know if Ron <laughs> would say that right now. <laughs> That's so true. Right. Because like what makes it distracting? Does it have to be irrelevant in order for it to be a distraction? Oh, interesting. So I'm going to offer an anecdote instead of an answer back, but I think it might be informative. So lately, whenever I feel the desire to open Twitter, mm. I instead get up and rub the dog's belly because I'm like, that is a more productive use of my time than going to Twitter. And it's also called my attention to how frequently I feel like opening Twitter because the dog's getting a lot of belly rubs. And so Twitter is like just a distraction. And the dog is just a distraction from the work. But just because it's more meaningful doesn't mean that it's not a distraction. It's a break instead of a distraction, maybe. Well, what I love about that is that you're noticing when you're getting distracted. I mean, that that's what I think is so hard. It's so easy to fall into those habits. And then suddenly it's five minutes later and you're like, why am I reading about Rob Lowe giving commentary on the British politics? Like, why? <laughs> so in those cases, I think, like, yeah, it is a distraction, In order for us to know if it's distracting, we have to know, like, what the point of our work or our being is in some way. Like, and I think one of the challenges with all of this is, like, a distraction isn't just about, like, distracting us from our work so that we're more productive and that we're more, you know, we're working harder and smarter. Like, that's not what life is about. Yes, it's about contributing in some way, but, like, I want to put something bigger than my work or my productivity or the economy at the center of my life. And so... You know, if you look at monastic cultures, I love that idea that so much of what happens in a monastery 
is for the glory of God, to use that language, right? Like, it's about something bigger than me or about what I'm doing. And at the same time, like, that's so hard to do every day. And, like, I know precisely, like, maybe three people who are able to do that. That's a lot. Right. And, I mean, they're all monks. Like, that's yeah. the thing, right? Like, they're, they're all monastic people. Yeah. I don't know why, why I'm thinking about that, but there's something— No, I love that because to some extent what has happened is my brain has become distracted and by going to the dog instead of opening Twitter in that moment of distraction, I'm like, let me remind myself about things that matter. Connection with other living beings. So I'm going to go and, like, pet the dog as a reminder that this is what matters. And then go back to my, like, meaningful work rather than let the moment of distraction determine my next step as sort of reactive to boredom, which isn't necessarily what's happening. Exactly. And so just because I've gotten up from my work doesn't mean— I'm distracted from my work, it means I took a moment of distraction and made a meaningful moment out of it. Whereas if I had just gone on to Twitter, I would have just gotten distracted upon distracted. And I think we're becoming more and more aware that those moments where we go to social media or we go to a news platform, our attention is what gives companies profit. And so one of the things that you read about in the papers now around Silicon Valley is that the you know the most senior executives in these big tech companies are the strictest about their children not using screens or engaging with tech until they're much older because they know how addictive these platforms are. And it's literally changing the wiring in our brain so that one of the jobs that I heard a futurist talk about, like that'll be a real thing in like 2040, is like a neuroprotection person, like that you're literally like blocking things from getting to your brain because it would shape or distract it from, you know, the thing you're creating or the work that you're doing or, or the life even that you're trying to live. And so if we can train ourselves, which is so hard to do what you're doing, that's a beautiful transformation of, of distraction that saps something from us to something that creates more connection in our lives. That's powerful. I mean, so now I'm on Twitter 300 times a day instead of 400. So let's talk about the game, Vanessa, because Harry is totally distracted in the early stages of the game, right? Harry's job is to go find the snitch, but he spends like nearly a minute just watching the game take place. He's listening to the commentary. He's watching the players. Of course, Ron is playing, so he's eager to see what happens. But he is way out of it until Angelina screams at him and he's like horrified once he realizes that he's been so distracted. And part of the reason why he's distracted is that he hears the Slytherins singing, right? We've already heard snippets of this song, but now, like, at least a quarter of the school, and I have a sense that some Ravenclaws are singing too, maybe just for strategic reasons, because they want Gryffindor to lose. But this whole song about Weasley is our king is happening. And it really made me think about how song is actually a great protest tactic. Like, the Slytherins, we can judge for all sorts of things, but they are good at using public protest right now. Like, Singing in public is so discombobulating, like it's so unnormal that you're able to distract things that are happening. So often people who are doing direct action will, will be singing as they put their bodies on the line, both because it gives one another courage, but also it's a way of communicating a message in a way that if banners are taken down, you still literally have your voice. So I feel like the Slytherins are giving us a social justice workshop here. Sure. Also, I was distracted by the fact that Draco at the end is like, I wanted to say something mean about Molly, but I couldn't think of anything that rhymed with fat. It's literally one of the easiest words to rhyme with. Bat. Rat. Cat. Everywhere. Sat. Drat. Matt. Nat. <laughs> with the G. 
Nat is with a G. <laughs> but yeah, what's interesting to me about that is also that Draco's whole strategy for catching the snitch is to watch Harry. And that Harry has a more complex strategy of looking for the snitch while keeping an eye on Draco. I think that that might be sort of like part of a, like a fidget spinner benefit to Harry's tactic of he has two things to concentrate on. So he can't, once he's in it and is no longer worried about Ron, he can focus more because he's paying attention to two things. Whereas Draco's just focused on Harry. It's a bad strategy that Draco has. Well, I think Harry's strategy is bad because I don't think he's purposefully concentrating on Ron. I think this is one of those classic situations where we want to help our friend But what we're doing is not helping, right? The way to help Ron is to go and catch that snitch so that, like, he can get off the pitch as soon as he can. But I think that Harry doesn't want Ron to feel rescued. He wants Ron to have a killer save and then for Harry to catch the snitch. But that killer save is not coming today. It's not. And then he starts focusing on looking for the snitch. But only when Angelina tells him to. Because Angelina is like, that killer save's not coming today. (laughs) Give up. But I think the fact the text tells us that he's horrified once he realizes it's been a minute suggests that this is really not purposeful. Like, he is just pulled in, right? Like, we've talked before about that weird dynamic of driving past an accident and you kind of want to look at what's happened even though you know it's going to cause delays for people behind you and that it's just not a nice thing to do. But I think Harry is like looking at something falling apart and he can't tear his eyes away. Oh, that's interesting. I saw it more as a driving metaphor also came to me, but where you like arrive at home and you're like, how did I get here? And you're sort of like, thank goodness nothing out of the norm happened because I don't remember the last 10 minutes. Harry's having a moment of horror because Draco could have caught the snitch and he would have missed the whole thing. Or do you think he's just like, I didn't grow up with the TV, so I'm watching TV. (laughs) So, Casper, here's one other question about distraction. Mm. Umbridge comes in and micromanages the heck fire out of this meeting between McGonagall and George and Harry. I don't understand her strategy in this moment. This seems like way beneath her notice. She's a very like high-ranking ministry official who's there to like prevent things like Dumbledore's army. How is this not just like an obsession for her and therefore a distraction? Like she is obsessed with making Harry miserable, but that seems like a distraction from her purpose there. I think she's achieving exactly what she wants to do. Like, she's achieving two things here. One is that the whole conversation about Dumbledore and insurrection and Voldemort is all centered on Harry. So anything that discredits Harry serves her purpose, right? Is kicking him off the Quidditch team discrediting him? Because he was violent against another student and he can't be trusted as a witness. I think I think that fits into a narrative that she's trying to tell about Harry. But then secondly, she's also making McGonagall lose face in front of students and therefore diminishing her respect and power in the school and therefore lifting up her own. I think this is a masterstroke by Umbridge. Interesting. So do you mind if I use distraction as a way to rail against the house system one more time? (laughs) Bring it on. This is my drum and I like to beat it. Hermione, like, shows off that she's amazing at bewitching these coins. And uh, Ravenclaw boy says to her, why aren't you in Ravenclaw? And she's like, oh, actually, the sorting hat thought about it and decided that I should be in Gryffindor. And I'm like, this is a distraction from everything. This is separating you guys. This is literally supposed to be talking about strategic ways for you to bond. And instead, you are distracted 
by a difference between the two of you that is entirely made up. And I just feel like institutionally, I think I now see why they keep housing alive. And that is because it is ways to distract the kids and keep them from organizing. This is like union busting. You are like separating the kids into quarters. You are giving them reasons to fight amongst themselves. They can't organize as well if they were like all unified and so separate them into these small groups. Divide and rule. Yeah. If the kids had some control over it and like transfers were available, right? Like it was like, oh, I actually feel like I'm this other thing or I'm not warm and huggy enough. I want to transfer into Hufflepuff so that I can really learn about that. If there was some sort of meaning to this, I think that it would be an exciting distraction. But right now, it is just a meaningless color scheme. It's fascism. Fashionism. So my Havruta question for you today is, are there good forms of corruption? And we see it, I just think, like beautifully illustrated in these two corrupt moments in this chapter. Corrupt moment one is when McGonagall does not give homework to her transfiguration class and says, like, you all have enough work to do, and then pulls Harry and Ron aside and is like, you guys better use that extra time to practice. I've gotten used to the Quidditch Cup being in my... (laughs) my office, and I don't want to hand it over to Snape. And then Snape is completely corrupt. Also, he is booking the Quidditch pitch all the time. I think even maybe when Slytherin isn't using it, but basically just so that Gryffindor can't use it to practice. And he turns his head to a violence done against Alicia Spinett. And so I think that one form of corruption is a victimless crime, like none of the students are getting homework. Slytherins could also use that extra time to practice. It's just a choice she's making for a corrupt reason, but the way it plays out in the world doesn't impact in a corrupt way, where Snape's is like clearly corrupt, clearly benefits one over another. Well, I think, Vanessa, the key challenge, if McGonagall goes down this route and she does, it doesn't leave her much of a leg to stand on if, you know, students come and complain about Snape, right? So if students say, well, Snape did this thing, he's giving people preferential treatment, right? She's just let all the Gryffindors off scot-free without homework and explicitly said to Ron and Harry, please go and work on the on the Quidditch. So she she can't claim some sort of moral superiority and take on Snape for that kind of behavior. Now, We can talk about gradation of awfulness, and Snape always wins that challenge. (laughs) But nonetheless, like, she has already been demoted in terms of umbrage kind of taking over power. And now she's losing, to some extent, some of that moral power because she's playing the same game that Snape is. I also think that it potentially gives her—she might lose moral points, and I take your point on that. But I think also— Breaking a rule with somebody creates intimacy. And maybe the thing that Ron and Harry need right now is a little bit reminder of like, hey, I'm on your side. And like there's nothing, right, like thick as thieves. If you have committed a quote unquote crime with someone, there's just intimacy to that. And that just seems so materially different than the corruption that Snape is clearly like trying to get away with here. And so I think that McGonagall can 
justify this as positive in a lot of different ways of like, nobody is hurt by this. Slytherins are not getting a disadvantage. And like Ron and Harry know I like care about them. I think the thing that really bothers me is when it's done without openness. The thing about corruption is does it give some people a a structural advantage over others? And what's hard, especially in political systems, is that all politics is relational to some extent, right? Like to get things done in a political system, you need relationship to kind of grease the wheels. And where is the boundary between taking you out for a drink and like building a relationship and so that we know and trust each other versus I'm buying you lunch and maybe some plane tickets. And oh, by the way, here's a lifetime subscription to your favorite magazine, El Decor. Because in a way, then you're buying something from me, right? Like, I don't want that subscription to magazines to end. And so if I don't really care about this vote, like, or I'm not really going to invest the time in reading the bill, I'm just going to vote with you because you have my trust or you have, you know, my magazine subscription power. So trying to figure out where is the line between like relationship and corruption can be really tricky. But what I like about McGonagall's actions here is that It's very open. It's very public, right? It is in no way giving them a structural advantage over anyone else in the class. And let me just say also that, like, I love preferential treatment. I love giving it. I love love receiving it. And I love receiving it. It's usually for a reason, right? I'm like, I'm going to be nicer to you because I like you and I like you because I trust you and I trust you because you're a good person. So basically, you're telling me I have license to ask anything at this point. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. That is exactly what I'm saying. (laughs) Our voicemail this week is from Kat Severin. Hi, Sacred Text team. My name is Kat and I'm from Chicago. I was listening to your episode about healing and I related a lot to Vanessa's struggles to get a diagnosis. I spent Thanksgiving of 2017 in the emergency room and I've spent the year since trying to figure out why. I've had a lot of invasive tests, including three colonoscopies before the age of 25. I've lost a ton of weight. I've changed my diet. I'm doing everything right, but we still don't know what's going on and I'm still in pain. And as I was listening, I was struck by the parallels between what I'm going through and what Harry's going through. We both have physical evidence of the trauma that we're experiencing. Harry was able to bring back Cedric's body and I do have some symptoms that are objectively observable, but for both of us, we know something's wrong And we know that if we don't do anything about it, it's not going to get fixed. And most of our evidence is our story. And we just have to hope that people believe us. And there's something so frustrating about that thing also being something that's inside of you. For me, it's whatever's happening in my digestive system. And for Harry, it's the fragment of Voldemort's soul that is continuing to give him evidence that, yes, it wasn't just one weird fever dream. There is something still wrong. There is something that still can be done. And not being able to get the help because people just think that you're asking for attention or that you have a low pain threshold. So I wanted to offer a blessing for anyone else who, like me, is still struggling to get diagnosed. And I hope that your medical professionals believe you. Thanks, guys. Kat, I believe you. And I hope that you get the treatment that you deserve soon. It can be a really long, hard road. 
and it does not justify the sweetness of the diagnosis. (laughs) This is not beneficial suffering that, like, that diagnosis moment is going to make it all worth it. But that diagnosis moment is sweet, and it is coming for you, which transitions really well to my blessing today, which is for Alicia Spinette, who has been hexed, and her eyebrows are growing really quickly. And even though there are 14 eyewitnesses, Snape chooses not to believe them and instead says, like, she was asking for it. She was probably just trying to thicken her own hair. And she was asking for it. You just have a low pain threshold. You just want attention. These are things that we say to women when we want to dismiss them. And I want to offer a blessing to all women who have gone through this. And we can fight it by believing each other. And I believe Alicia Spinette. What about you, Casper? Well, I can't help but bless Luna in this chapter. I know. I just love what she's doing. And partly because I love costumes, partly because she's crossing house boundaries in a way that we have talked about as something that's so necessary, right? She's a Ravenclaw wearing a Gryffindor mask. But also because she is just fearless in not caring what people think of her. Or if she is fearful of it, like she lives through it anyway, she is a friend showing up to support, you know, people that she loves with a lion's roar of support. And so may we be grateful for the Lunas in our lives who show up with their lion's roar. But also, like, let's be braver in, you know, cheering each other on, even if it's like zooming around on a Quidditch pitch and sucking at it. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We've started a Patreon where we now have exclusive content, including extra bloopers, so you can go and support us there. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or leave us a review on iTunes, or send us a brief voicemail to harrypottersacredtext at gmail.com. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 20, Hagrid's Tale, through the theme of peace. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Ariana Nettleman, Casper Turkile, and Vanessa Zoltan. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bowl, and we are a part of Night Vale Presents. This week's voicemails from Kat, we would like to thank as always Julia Argy, Bridget Goggin, Danny Egan, and Stephanie Paulsell. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. I have one last theme question for you on this topic of distraction. Mm. So Umbridge comes oh, in. Oh, look, a rosemary. <laughs> a rosemary? I, I like a bush? <laughs> like just... a person? I don't know, but I was distracted. <laughs> <laughs> a rosemary bush just came walking by. Rosemary's baby? <laughs> he said, of rosemary. <laughs> <A> rosemary. <laughs> <laughs> They're like nine. <laughs>